Good morning. I, I am so glad each of you are here. Many, many years ago, Marie and I received a very, very special gift. It was a priceless gift, in fact. It was a, it was a family piano that had been passed down through the generations. It was this uh, upright piano that was solid oak. It weighed a 1,000 pounds, and it was one that Marie's mother had, had learned to play on as a child, and it was passed on to us. And uh, it was decades, many, many decades old, and while it was this solid oak and all, it had been beaten and battered, and some of the keys no longer worked, and some of the, the wires or whatever they're called and the insides of it um, were beyond repairing it. You couldn't tune it right, but it was this heirloom to us, and so we saved up some money over the course of a few years, our early married years, and decided to get it restored fully. And so we found this man uh, that was in the downtown area. He had this warehouse in the downtown area. We saw some of his work, and he did beautiful, beautiful work. He had maybe a, two dozen pianos he was working on, and um, he gave us a quote on our piano and talked about how he would restore it. And he was one of these guys that there was this, this instant connect, one of these guys that you could, you could feel the, like the heartbeat and the compassion and, and uh, the charisma of this guy. And, and, and um, we began to think of him even in the first meeting, let alone the following meetings, as like this guy could be family for us and such a, a genuine, caring person. So um, because it was going to be labor-intensive and he didn't know us, and there'd be a lot of labor, and if we didn't pay, then he's left with a, like a half-restored piano. And so we wrote him a check for some of the labor, and, and he did some major work. We came in and maybe, maybe about a month in, and we were blown away at the work he was doing. He was taking the piano apart literally piece by piece, like key by key by key, and restoring it to, to pristine condition. It was beautiful. We began to think, this is an heirloom not just for us, but someday, although um, at that time we didn't have any kids yet, uh, we thought someday we'll pass this on to one of our children, and they will to their children, and on and on and on, because it was going to be in this pristine condition. And you could see, this guy, this guy cared more about the piano than we did, which was a lot. And at that point of the process, there was a lot more labor to be done. At that point, he had to start buying some of the some of the actual uh, materials to go into it, the things that couldn't be repaired. And he was going to do it the right way, the authentic way, and some of those are going to be expensive. So he wrote him another check and, and couldn't wait to come back again. We called him about a month later and uh, couldn't get through. We called again and again and maybe a fourth time and thought, uh, this guy has no family. And we began to be deeply concerned about what might have happened to him. And so we went by the warehouse two or three times. It was always locked and closed, and our concerns for him got even deeper. So we called the police, worried about him. And the police said they got the connection to who it was and where the warehouse was. And they said, uh, this is a con man who has scammed like two dozen families, including the district attorney. And so he's collected all this money, done little bits of the work, and now he's left town and skipped town. And, and I, I can't tell you um, what I felt, but if I spelled R-A-G-E, you would probably understand that there was this, there was this rage about what this man had done. When we uh, went through all the wreckage, we went into this uh, warehouse, and two dozen pianos had been just taken apart in pieces and pieces uh, scattered every place. And so we couldn't even find where the piano was. It was there someplace in scattered in pieces. You had 24 pianos in all these individual pieces. This was the only piece we could bring home. That's a harbor pin to put some size to it. That's a harbor pin at the base. That's all that's left of that piano. When we live this life on this planet, we can't get by without being wounded by others and scathed by others on this planet. And we've done some, a lot of scathing ourselves to others as well. 
So this is where we're going today. We're going to talk about what you do when you've been wounded by others. And before I go there, I want to pull back up and kind of get a big picture for you about it. And, and first I have to say this, because if I don't, I'll forget. I would urge you to take notes. There are several details that you'll want and need to remember. So take notes. And, uh, so we have a, and this actually process will help you. I'm low tech, but they tell me if you follow those instructions, you actually will, will get a screen that has all of my slides on this, uh, will come up for you. And so it'll save you a bunch of writing. So feel free to access this on your device if you would care to do that. But take notes. Let me give us a big picture. Um, many of you, most of you, although not all, would know the first 19 years of our church's life, we were known as Friendswood Community Church. And last Sunday, for the first time, we have a new name. We're called The Harbor. And the reason for the change was we began to realize through the years that although people were coming far beyond the Friendswood community, it's not uncommon for someone to travel 30 minutes to get here, that while some were coming, there were so many more that would not come, that did not have a church home, that would not come because it was Friendswood community. And we began to realize, well, our name just has described where we are all these years. And it was holding many people from coming that might meet Jesus. I really come to know him and love him and follow him. And so for that reason and that reason alone, we, we changed the name to the harbor. If you think about a harbor for ships, a harbor is a place where ships that are damaged are brought to be restored. It's a place where ships that have their fuel tanks empty are brought to be refueled. And after they're restored and refueled, they're returned to sea where they're meant to be for the bulk of their existence. And just as ships are brought to harbors for those things, for 19 years, God's been bringing people to this place, battered, bruised, and broken people, and he's been restoring them to health. And he's been bringing people to this place that are weary and worn. He's been refueling them. And as he restores and refuels, he's returning them to their daily life with Jesus at the center. That's what we're all about. And so we're in this series that started last week where I'll, I'll teach about how, how God does restore people's lives here, exactly how he does that and how he refuels lives here and how he returns us to this life with Jesus at the center. And so last week I covered what would, I would have to say is the most crucial piece of all. I talked about how God restores us from our self-inflicted damage. And it is the deepest and most uh, long-lasting damage of all. And uh, you'll, if you miss that, you'll need to pick up a CD on the way out or go to our website and, and view or listen to um, the message itself. But it's the most crucial part of it is how we've damaged ourselves. So today I want to talk about, about how God restores us when others have wounded us, when others have damaged us. The personal story I told was bad enough to lose a family heirloom forever, but you know there are wounds much worse than that. Brandon and Crystal Bailey have been here for some time, and Marie and I have gotten to know them. We did a, a, several weeks of a married small group at our home, and Brandon and Crystal were part of that. They are a priceless, inspiring couple, and they've given us a glimpse of their story. I want you to watch it and listen to it, especially listen to, to the damage done to them by others in the opening moment of it. And then you'll, then you'll get the big picture about Jesus coming in, and then I'll teach about the details of how that restoration happened. So take a look at this, Brandon and Crystal Bailey. We both had pretty similar upbringings, but um, when we veered off is where we kind of differed. Um, growing up, we had a little bit different stories. Growing up, my parents used to fight a lot and eventually led to their divorce. With my dad, 
no church, a lot of cussing and screaming and yelling and alcoholism. And um, in the midst of all this is really what started my, my downward spiral into drugs and alcohol. I was um, sexually abused as a child from a family friend. Then soon after that, I was involved with a guy. I had a long-term relationship that was physically and mentally abusive. It kind of just really wrecked me as a person who I thought I was and my identity. I don't even know how it started. It just, one day I woke up and it was, I didn't have a relationship with God at all. And then eventually I met Crystal. And even into our relationship, it, we carried on that same tradition of just partying, uh, drugs, alcohol, you know, whatever. We were just so broken people, just broken people. We, we've hit we've hit as bottom as, as low as we can go. We think. I really just looked back in my life, and I, one night I just I just prayed. I said, God, what do you want for my life? I remember one time it was just um, somebody explaining grace to me. I think that was when I really started exploring grace and forgiveness and just kind of living this free life of um, of Jesus and not having to worry about my actions, but it was more about following and loving God, and I found out that the more I learned about God, the more I loved Him. God kind of took all those addictions and stuff away from us. We were kind of regularly going with my parents to church, but one day he got he started saying that he wanted to go look around, and he didn't know if this was the church we needed to be at. I went with him, and we um, looked around a couple churches, and we landed on FCC. We were all in. Like, we were going to figure this out together. We were going to... Um, we were gonna do this thing and try to walk with Christ the best that we could. We don't feel like we had ever really um, been followers of Christ or really ever really knew what it meant. So this was different. God can do miracles in like the messiest of, of times, the messiest of people. And uh, he really just did a huge work in our lives. We came in here as broken people and the harbor has really restored us back to Christ. It was here where we were able to be restored and it was really come as you are because we came as we were, and that was really messy. And, and um, they loved us. They, the whole they just loved us, and and just we were able to be restored through just finding Jesus and who He really was, and how He thought about us, and how much He loved us. And uh, I just don't know if if we could have done that without coming here. As low as you can go in our lives, and we came to the harbor, and it restored us back to a a vibrant life with Jesus. What do you do when you've been wounded by someone else? Uh, at, at the very core, the big picture they've, they began to speak about, the big picture, the answer lies in Jesus and relationship with him. But I want I wanted, to uh, unfold what that actually looks like in the day-to-day and, and how God works in the day-to-day to bring this about. When you or I are wronged, we only have two options with what we do about the wrong. When we're wronged, there are only two options that we have. One option is to demand justice. And in a civil society, I would say that that justice is crucial, that justice be fair and be certain and be consistent. It's crucial to a civil society. But in our individual lives, when we demand justice, there's some unexpected costs that can become very, very significant. If you or I, if if we're wronged and we demand justice, if that justice is not immediately forthcoming, 
This is what happens to all of us. There's this open account. Someone's wronged us. Someone has damaged us or someone's taken something away from us. And it's an open account. We're demanding justice that hasn't been given. And what we do is we begin to, it's an open account and we go back to it again. And we begin to rethink and relive the wrong done. And as we rethink it, and it almost always is with with all the painful details, we experience the pain all over again. And we don't do it just once, but if it's an open account and we're still demanding justice and it hasn't come, we'll do it this week and this month and this year, and in some cases for decades. And every single time we're, we're reopening this and we're reliving it and experiencing the pain again. This is, a, this is an ugly analogy, but I'm going to give it to you because you need to know how ugly this is. It, it's, like, it's like pulling the scab off of a wound, except worse. It's, it's reliving the wrong again and again and suffering the pain again and again and again. And the outcomes, and you can track human history and you can find people that have written about this for a long, long, long time. The outcomes are resentment and anger and bitterness and depression. I mean, those are, that's the fruit if we demand justice. There's only one other option than demanding justice, and that is to forgive. It is to forgive. Let me give you a working de- definition of forgive so we're on the same page. To forgive is no longer demanding payback for a wrong done. Forgiveness is no longer demanding payback for a wrong done. In other words, if someone has done something wrong, then they owe you. They, they need to make it right. Maybe it's in restoring things. Maybe it's in their own suffering as well. But, but forgiveness is saying, I'm, I'm closing the account. I mean, justice has not been served, and I'm closing the account out. I'm, I will no longer demand payback for the wrong done. And this is important to grasp. Forgiveness is the key in the Bible uh, to all relationship. If you look at Scripture from cover to cover, the, the key issue of relationship throughout all of Scripture is surrounded by forgiveness. And, and all All emotional health that one gets at one point is grounded in forgiveness. All relational health that one has is grounded in forgiveness. In fact, even all spiritual health you and I have is grounded in forgiveness. And God speaks about it much. Jesus speaks so deeply, so profoundly about it. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer that uh, many in this room would have memorized, there's a a part where, depending on your tradition, you pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, or, or forgive us, uh, however it's worded for you, our transgressions as we forgive our transgressors. Or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then Jesus closes out the Lord's Prayer. It, it's the perfect prayer. It's this profound prayer. But there's only one point that Jesus elaborates on in the entire prayer. It's around forgiveness. He says this in Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, immediately following the Lord's Prayer. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your, your Father will not forgive your sins. That ought to grip each of us at the core. And as though that weren't enough, in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, Jesus actually tells this parable about forgiveness. And in the parable, he talks about this great, all-powerful king, and there's this servant that owes the king a stunning amount of money. If you actually look back historically to the illustration he uses, it's impossible that someone could even owe this much money, especially a servant to a king. 
but the, this servant owes this much money. The king is going to give him his, his you know, due justice for never paying it back. And the servant pleads for mercy, and the king gives it to him. If the king forgives the entire massive debt, and the servant leaves, and before he's even gotten home, he encounters another fellow servant who owes him a very small sum of money, and, and he demands payback. This fellow servant asks for mercy, as the first servant had done, but, but this, this servant doesn't give the other fellow servant mercy and demands payback, and then as their laws would allow at the time, he had this man put in jail. I mean, you, you went to prison, you didn't pay your debts, had him put in jail. And Jesus continues the story and says, if you refuse to forgive, this is what my heavenly Father will do to you. I mean, profound, profound. It, it should be um, like deeply gripping what he said about that. And then as, this is just one example of many, Paul, the Apostle Paul would write about this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. He would say, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. You must forgive others. This is, like, this is the way of Jesus. This is God's way. God's saying, this is how life works. So, so this is where I want to go from here. I want to cover with you what forgiveness is not. I'm going to cover what it is not because there's much confusion about this. And then I want to cover with you the essential steps of forgiveness. The essential steps of forgiveness. And then I want to cover with you some questions and concerns that I've seen over and over again and that I've had around this issue of forgiveness. So, so this is what forgiveness is not. Let me give you four things forgiveness is not. It's not overlooking the wrong. To forgive someone is not to overlook the wrong. In other words, it's not to just try to forget about it. Just try to ignore it. Try to pretend it never happened. If you have, if you have some slight offense given to you by someone that you'll never see again, you can get away with forgetting about it. But if it's someone you're going to see again, even if it's a slight offense and you leave it there, then the next slight offense will build upon the first and the next will build upon those two and on and on and on until it all breaks down. And if it's a major offense and you try to just forget about it, what happens is, is uh, this unforgiven offense or unforgiven wrong done to you will, will lie there and fester and become poison. That's what happens. It's not overlooking the wrong. Forgiveness is also, it is not whitewashing. It's not whitewashing. By that, I mean it's not, it's not saying, well, it wasn't really that bad. It's not minimizing it. It's not looking at it and saying, well, yeah, that's the facts, but it's not that bad. That's not what, forg- it's not what forgiveness is. Third, it's not explaining away or psychoanalyzing. It's not reflecting upon the person's life and thinking, well, I understand why they wronged me. Maybe why they wronged me so badly because of the damage in their life. It's not doing that at all. It may help you have compassion for them if you understand the brokenness in their world and understand why they did it. But, but forgiveness is not doing that because that, that begins to diminish the wrong that was done. Forgiveness never diminishes the wrong that was done. And then finally, forgiveness is not you taking the blame. It's not you saying, well, I must have caused this. I must have brought this on myself. And sadly, we see that most often where there's been abuse. I mean, so often, sadly, the one who is abused will begin to believe the lie, well, I must have caused this. I must have deserved this. It's not taking the blame upon yourself. Okay, there are five essential steps of forgiveness. 
Five essential steps of forgiveness. The first is this, is to face the wrong done and be very specific in the wrong that was done. In the, uh, the Piano Man illustration, by the way, uh, there's an old Billy Joel song called The Piano Man, and uh, I used to love that song until this Piano Man came along. And, and there was a season uh, where I hated that song until I actually forgave The Piano Man, and now I enjoy the song again. But, but with The Piano Man, when I finally got to the point of forgiving him, I didn't even know Jesus when this happened, but when I got to that point, I had to, I had to put down, he cost us X dollars. And this is, this is one of the facts, but even bigger than that, he stole from us this priceless family heirloom that could never be recovered. And, and I had to put the clear facts down. This, this is what I had to look at it and say, this is what I'm going to decide what to do with. Am I going to demand justice? Am I going to forgive him for this? It's putting down the facts. It's putting down the this, this specifics of it. You cannot forgive what you cannot articulate. You need to deeply understand that you cannot forgive what you cannot articulate. If you, if you can't describe the wrong done, there's no way you can forgive something. I mean, there's a serious transaction forgiveness. You can't forgive something you can't even put words to. Okay, so the first, the first step is to face the wrong done in all of its gory details. The second step is to face the hurt and pain. Face the hurt and pain. It's, it's more than just the physical facts. With the piano man, it was more than this sum of dollars and this factual event of losing a family heirloom. With the piano man, I mean, we experienced betrayal. The way this man acted toward us, we had begun to think this guy's like family. And, and, and we experienced betrayal from him. And we experienced sadness and grief. And you may want to jot some of these uh, suggestions down because as you're tracking this, it may help trigger to you what you've really experienced in it. One is betrayal. Another is sadness and grief. And for us, I had to write down, it wasn't just the factual stuff. It was, I, I've grieved that, you know, the loss of something that was of great value to us. For you, in some woundings done, you might have experienced deep rejection or you might have experienced humiliation, or in many cases, devaluation, in some hard, hard cases, abandonment, in some cases, deprivation. The list could go on and on and on, but it's looking beyond just the facts. And, and I'm, I'm an engineer, many of you would know, by, by trade and by 15 years of practice, and I, I love facts. I'm very comfortable in facts, but even us engineers, and there's some of you out there too, Okay, and, and we're broken people, but we're recovering. But even us engineers, we experience the emotions, even if we can't describe them. And so this is, is, this is to face the hurt and the pain that one has experienced. It's crucial to do that because you're going to have to forgive in, in light of that, in full light of that. Next is to face the resentment. That's simply being honest with yourself and with God and saying, I deeply resent this person. The piano man? I looked in the dictionary for a stronger word than resentment. <laughs> uh, there were a whole lot of emotions around there that resentment didn't seem to be strong enough, but, but you have to face the resentment. Resentment comes when you're wounded. Okay, face the resentment. And then fourth, and this is the crucial piece, is then face the cross. Face the cross. And when you and I face the cross, that's where, where we have the chance to remember that Jesus died to offer me forgiveness, complete forgiveness. And if you are a follower of Jesus, 
Like you've trusted your life to him, you're following him, then you are forgiven. Not only did he die for you to offer it to you, but you've accepted that forgiveness and you're totally forgiven. And it's crucial to, in the process of forgiveness, before you decide what to do about this, to demand justice to forgive, it's crucial to, to sit there and resonate with this deep fact of Jesus bled and died to give you forgiveness. If you've not trusted him, if you're not following him, the offer is outstanding right now. He still died for you, and he's offered it to you, you haven't accepted it, but to face that. And to recognize in Matthew 18, in the story he told there about this one servant that was forgiven so much, and he wouldn't forgive the much lesser offenses that uh, had not been paid off to him. We're the servant who was forgiven much. Whenever I have to face down and decide if I'm going to forgive, I have to come face to face. I'm, I'm the one who's been forgiven so much. And you're that one as well. To face the cross is to recognize that all forgiveness involves suffering love. That all forgiveness involves suffering love. When you've been wrong, there's a suffering there. And it's love that will drive you to forgiveness. And then it's to recognize when you look at the cross, there's no easy forgiveness. You, you imagine and picture Jesus on the cross. There's no easy forgiveness. And you forgiving will not be easy either. And then that brings us down to the, the final decisive step. The first four are crucial to have those. And the fifth step is to determine to no longer demand payback. In light of all that you've looked at, you, you have faced it all down. You, you put down the specifics of, of what was done. You put down the, the specifics of the pain and damage and emotions that you've had. You, you've, you're facing the resentment that you really authentically feel. You face the cross and what Jesus did to forgive you or to offer you forgiveness if you've not yet accepted it. And, and this is the point to determine to no longer demand payback. I say determine. This is very important. Forgiveness is an act of the will, not the emotions. Forgiveness is an act of the will, not the emotions. That's why Jesus can command it of us. It, it's a matter of just deciding it independent of my emotions, independent of the resentment and the rage and everything else, I will decide. I will no longer demand payback. I'm closing the account. I'm saying debt paid. I will no longer demand payback. Marie and I have seen, Marie has walked with so many people through, through deep forgiveness. And we both have seen, in many cases, the value of doing something to, something physical to enact uh, to, to put some enactment around this forgiveness. It's in some cases that I've seen and used, it's helped someone to actually to, to write down that first step of writing down the wrong done. It's helped to write down a piece of paper. It, this person robbed me of this much money. This person robbed me of this family heirloom. This person robbed me of my innocence. This person, whatever it is, write it all down. And then to write on the piece of paper, the, here was the pain. Here was the emotional damage done. Write down, I deeply resent this person. And then write down, but I'm, I'm looking at the cross. And then write down on the paper, in light of that, I will no longer demand payback. All debt paid, forgiven. And then I've had some folks back, go back to their house and light up the fireplace and throw it in the fireplace and destroy it. Or pull out the barbecue grill and before you have big steaks and a celebration about the freedom you've just found, light up the grill and wad up a piece of paper, throw it in, and burn it. And then light up the steaks and, uh, and then celebrate because there's a new, 
a new freedom coming. Now, this is important. How many times have I said that? This is important. This whole thing is important. Right, I, I hope I don't stand up here Sunday after Sunday and just give you a bunch of glib. It's not important. This, okay, but this is important. Okay, there, <laughs> There's this division of labor in forgiving. It's not all up to you. There's this division of labor in forgiving. Our part, our part, my part, your part, is the crisis of the human will. My part is the crisis of the human will. Will I decide to forgive? It's, it's, a, it's a matter of the will. It's like Jesus' command to love. I talk here a lot about to love is to want and do what's best for someone. It doesn't require any particular emotions to do that. Jesus commands us to love. He can command because it doesn't require emotions. He says, will you decide to love, to want, and do what's best? He commands us to forgive. And he says, will you decide you're going to close out the account? Not dependent upon emotions. Our part is the crisis of the human will. But here's the good news is that God has a part in this too. And God's part is the process of changing our emotions toward that person. God's part is to actually change our emotions and help our emotions actually catch up with what we've already determined that we would do. And it usually takes time. Many years ago, someone that I loved deeply was badly wounded. Uh, badly, badly wounded. Uh, in fact, it's just being honest, uh, when I found out about it, if that person had been in front of me, uh, I would have tried to beat them into oblivion. Or worse. And that was the level of the damage done. That was the pain. That was the, the rage within me. And it took me probably several weeks to get to the point of even being able to sit down and walk through these steps of forgiveness and getting to that last step and saying, just an act of the will. My emotions are, I don't know if, if, if the worst beating on the planet is enough, but say, I will close the account. I'll no longer demand payback. And when I did that, then that put it in God's hands to change my emotions about and toward that person. And it probably took one or two years for the complete transformation of my emotions. Because in the first week or weeks or first months, whenever I would think of what was done, the rage at one level would come back, usually as time went by less and less and less. But the emotions, ugly emotions would come back. And, but as over the course of one or two years, God completed this transformation of the emotions. And now I don't think of this offender often, but when I do for a long, long, long time, uh, there are no Ill, Ill feelings at all. And I always uh, pray with a full heart that this person now knows Jesus and is following Jesus and has been transformed by Jesus. And I pray hoping, hoping I get to meet this person in heaven. And my hope is that I do and, and, and there'll be this embrace of two broken sinners who healed. And, uh, and, and that transformation of emotions is a work of God. And that's what God does. That's his part. And, and we can never wait for the emotions to come before we decide choice of the will to forgive. The emotions won't come. I mean, the, the transformation of how we feel toward that person will not come. Uh, that's God's part. Our part is to decide account closed. No longer demand payback. 
let me address some questions and some concerns about forgiveness. One is the question, what about justice? What about justice? With this person that I just referred to, um, I, I forgave. I no longer demanded justice. But what I did was I turned them over to God and said, I'm account closed. I'm putting this person in your hands. Uh, you're the good and great and mighty and, and uh, the God of justice and mercy. They're in your hands. And then this person was in the legal system at this point, and I put them in the system in the hands of the legal system. I, I, I wrote it off. But even as I did that, I said, God, now they're in your hands, and legal system, uh, they're in your hands. And, and so it, when you're wronged, if you forgive, which is the only route to healing and restoration, you're still turning them over to God. And if it's a legal offense, you're turning them over to the justice system here. Okay, what if I've forgiven and I still feel anger and resentment? What do I do? And obviously, from what I've said, you should expect to feel, in, in the initial stage, uh, the same anger and resentment and all those feelings. You should expect that in the beginning. And so when those emotions come back, when you think of that, of that person, then what you must do is recall and reaffirm, you've forgiven them. Just think back and, and recall, back when? You might even recall the season or even the day. I, I already forgave them. And I'm reaffirming the forgiveness now. My will has not changed on that. It was a decision of the will then, decision of the will now. I've forgiven them. And then trust God to change the emotions. And he will. Trust God to change the emotions, and he will. And, and uh, give, him, give him time and space to catch the emotions up to what you've actually done. What about being hurt again? Okay? Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. It doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. In God's uh, dream scenario, there'd be reconciliation, but it takes, it takes two, like, um, two willing, humble people for reconciliation to happen. Not one, it takes two for reconciliation to happen. And, and so there are some cases where you need to prayerfully consider appropriate boundaries with the person. Prayerfully consider appropriate boundaries so you're not hurt again and again and again. This is the principle behind when Jesus talks about marriage and, and the sacredness of it and, and how marriage is not to be divided or broken. He does make the exception. He says, I, I allow you to, to divorce if there's been marital infidelity. And the principle behind that is he's saying there, there are some wounds that are so damaging that you don't have to keep putting yourself back in the position again and again and again to be wounded again and again and again. There's this principle of it, it can be so appropriate to pray and say, are there some boundaries I need to put in place? On more than one occasion, I've had some, some grown children that have come to me and talked about the, the abuse of their parents to them that didn't stop when they grew up. And the story's often been, we, we go for Christmas, we go for Thanksgiving, we go for a birthday, and the abuse begins to spew over and over and over again. And I, now I'm 42 years old. And I hate Christmas. I can't stand it. But the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. What do I do? And, and I've said, I think what God would have you do to honor them is to convey to them, probably through a letter, some cases maybe in person, convey to them that you will no longer enable them to sin that way with this abuse. You'll draw the line and say, I, I love you. I deeply love you. 
And I'm doing you no favors to show up and let you do this because it's wrong, it's a sin. And, and out of love, I'm not going to show up until you show some signs you want to change. And when you do, we can talk about it and begin to build bridges again. Okay. Final question. Do I tell the offender I have forgiven them? Do I tell the offender I have forgiven them? I would say most cases not. Most cases it doesn't do any good. Most cases it might even cause some harm. But there are a couple of exceptions I would give you. One is if they have asked for forgiveness, if they have asked for it, and you forgive them, tell them. Give them the benefit, the blessing of knowing you have forgiven them. Or if they are well aware that they have damaged the relationship. Maybe they've not asked for forgiveness. Maybe they don't want it. But they know the relationship is badly damaged because of of what they have done. If they're well aware of it, there could be some gain in going to them and saying, you know, we know what's going on. We know what happened. We know the harm you've done. But I want you to know I've forgiven you. Maybe some some gain in that. There's this stunning goodness of God. Um, God yearns to fully restore us from damage others cause us. He yearns for that. And his pathway of that restoration is the pathway of forgiveness. It's the only pathway of that. But it is his pathway, and I will vouch for this from a 32-year run of following this pathway of forgiveness best I can. Uh, of There's such stunning freedom. Uh, the, the wounds, the couple of examples I've given... Um, Man, if I were a ship, if I were a ship being brought to harbor, you wouldn't even see scars left from those. Man, God's been that good in the healing process. He yearns for us to find uh, that kind of healing. He yearns to restore us to full health. The goodness of God, I, I told you about this um, family heirloom piano that was lost forever, and, and it has been lost forever. But we actually now, we have, we have a family heirloom that is indeed a piano. One of the first memories of my life, preschool memory, I'm, I'm at home with my mother, and my father has ordered for her um, a piano for the 20th anniversary. And this little kid running around, and this piano shows up, and I remember my mother's delight and ecstasy. And then I remember the many years, I, I, I can't remember a day in that house without her joyfully playing that piano uh, throughout her entire lifetime. And uh, when she stepped into heaven, my dad stepped into heaven, uh, it was passed on to us. And so in, in our house now, there's this uh, family heirloom piano. It's been passed down to us. And every time I walk by it and see it, well, actually, my wire and I don't even see stuff in the house a lot of times. But, if, but the times I do see my house, because I, I live up here, not in the physical world around me. But when I do see it, I think of my mother and, and the joy there, but I think not only of her, but of Marie's mother. And, and that represents uh, both families' heirlooms in that, the goodness of God. There's a passage I referenced last week, Joel 2.25. It says, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten, the goodness of God. Will you forgive? We have a book table in the back. There's a resource that might help you. It's called The Gift of Forgiveness by Charles Stanley. And um, take a look at that. Check that out. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for a way uh, that can restore us. The wounds are real. Uh, I have caused many wounds to others, um, as all of us have. But by the same token, uh, we've all been wounded, all been damaged, all been scathed as well. And uh, thank you for this process of forgiveness. You've given us this great forgiveness. And um, 
may we trust you in this. May we take away learnings from this. May we apply this. And may this become the pathway for us to full restoration from the wounds others have done to us. I pray this with high expectations and great gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.